0: Folk singer is dead after she was attacked by a pair of coyotes. <laughs> what is the monkey doing? Tell me what's hit <laughs> your face off! We actually have a trainer in the water with one of our whales. If I show weakness, if I retreat, I may be hurt, I may be killed.
1: Baby Azaria
0: Chamberlain was taken by a dingo back in 1980. Yes! Let's hear it for the theme song. The theme song. Underrated part of the show, I think. I'm so damn excited to be recording this episode today that I've just spilled my white claw all over the desk, but I don't even mind. I'm pumped. I'm ready to go. Welcome back to Man Eaters, the only true crime podcast on the internet where all the killers are real animals. My name is James, and we are back with another edition of Man Eater Movies. Woohoo! A couple weeks ago, um, we talked about the movie The Grey from 2011, starring Liam Neeson and Frank Grillo, and you guys loved that. That it was probably the best performing episode we've ever done. So we're back, and we're doing the Mac Daddy of Monster Movies, or Animal Monster Movies, of Man in a Movies. You've been asking for it. We're going to talk about Jaws. When you think of a man in a movie, this is the one you think of. It's the most famous. It's the most successful. And quite frankly, it could be the best. So we are talking about Jaws today. The 1975, I think, uh, first proto-blockbuster directed by Steven Spielberg. Um, so yeah, strap in. If you got a chance to, to watch Jaws, um, let me know. Or if you watch Jaws after this episode, um, Let me know what your thoughts are on the film. So my um, preliminary thoughts on on Jaws are... It is just as good as you remember it. I, I watched Jaws when I was younger. Jaws is a—it's a terrific film. It's fantastic, and I don't think anyone was expecting anything less. You know, it's—it's it's Steven Spielberg. It's one of the most famous movies of all time for a reason. Um, but I was so engaged by the story and by the performances that it was just—it um, was. I, I surprised myself by how much I liked Jaws. I knew I'd like it, but I'm, I just kind of surprised myself by how much I would like it. So um, we're going to go through. We'll talk about the um, the the synopsis of the pl- of the of the play of this of the. The, um, film. Now, we'll also talk about a little bit of trivia. Um, I read a little bit of information about the stories of, of you know, casting the movie, um, the writing. For something I didn't know was that it had quite a troubled production. So um, we'll we jump into that as well. There is quite a lot of information about this movie, of course, since it is um, so, you know, universally beloved. So let's talk about the plot. So Jaws is based off a book called Jaws, um, which itself is inspired by the 1916 Jersey Shore shark attacks, um, which occurred, of course, in 1916 in New Jersey. We used to name things just better back then. Um, but I've done a whole episode on the New Jersey, um, shark attacks of 1916. Um, you can go back and listen to that. I recommend you do, um, because it, it will give you a little bit of a, an insight as to what was going on in the mind of the person who wrote the book, um, when, you know, when this happened. So I I believe Summer of the Shark was the episode, it was episode nine. So that was way back in February of this year, we did that episode. (laughs) So go back and listen to that one. Um, it might give you a little bit of context. So, um, the, the story of the movie, and I will talk a little bit about the book as well, but the movie essentially, rather than being set in New Jersey, um, Jaws is actually set in New England. It's, it's in a Massachusetts, I think, uh, beach town called Amity Island. Um, so yeah, the movie was released in 1975, and I believe it's it's uh, set in 1975 as well. The book was written in 1974 by Peter Benchley, um, and the movie stars uh, Roy Sch- Roy. I nearly said Schneider. Roy Scheider, um, and uh, along with Richard Dreyfuss and Robert Shaw. Mm. Is that a sip of a nice little White Claw there. Again, by the way, everyone, White Claw, the unofficial beverage of the podcast. If anyone knows anyone who works for White Claw, um, get them to send me an email. I would be very interested in sponsoring them. I don't even have to take any money. Um, Maybe I could just get like a 5% discount because these things are great. Listen to this. That was White Claw in my mouth. Okay. (laughs) I should probably pull back. So, um, the story... Uh, it is set in the New England fictional beach town of. Oh no, I don't think it is fictional. The fictional uh, town of Amity Island. Um, and at the beginning of the movie, a young woman um, named Chrissy Watkins, apparently, um, she goes skinny dipping in the ocean. Now, the first note when I started watching this movie, I took some notes. On my phone, and I stopped pretty quickly. But these these are the notes I took. The first note was these teens are really ugly. I thought that these I, I don't know why I remember these teens being like super attractive. I just I kind of thought they were ugly. The next note was titties. So yeah, she gets she gets all nude, and um, I'll talk about it a little bit later. But a little bit of um, trivia is is a. Uh, the woman who played Chrissy Watkins, uh, she was actually a stunt woman who took on the role of this woman because she was willing to, to go nude, um, which, you know, good for her. So um, this woman is skinny dipping uh, and while treading water, she's attacked and um, dragged underwater by an unknown force. But we know pretty early on it's a shark. Um, the next day... Um, Chief Martin Brady, Brody is, you know, waking up to his day. We meet his wife, we see his kids. Beautiful life. He gets a call to go to the beach. He goes there and they find um, her partial remains on the shore and um, everyone's very panicked by this. The medical examiner concludes that the death was uh, due to a shark attack, essentially. The cause of death was shark attack, uh, and so the chief is ready to shut down all the beaches. Um, however, the po- the politics of the town sort of come into play. The mayor of the town, whose name is, I think, Larry Fawn, I think, um, he doesn't want to close the beaches because it is getting to nearly the 4th of July, and that is like the biggest day of um, celebrations and economy booster for basically the whole town um, is the beaches. So he doesn't want to close them down. He, um... He persuades Brody to, like, reverse the decision, and he he basically, uh, I don't know how he does it, convinces or bribes or threatens the coroner into changing his medical report to say that the woman died from a boating accident, so she was churned up by a propeller or something. Um, the Yeah, so uh, Brody reluctantly accepts the conclusion until another uh, young person is killed by a shark. This time it was a young boy. His name was Alex Kittner, um, in full view of a crowded beach. So at this point... Um, Panic ensues. There is a shark attack and it is killed two people. Um, so, a bounty is placed on the shark um, and it causes like a frenzy. All these amateur hunters are getting on boats. They're being very reckless and dangerous. They're throwing explosives into the water. Um, and a professional shark fisherman named Quint, who was eccentric and he dragged his fingernails on the chalkboard just to make sure you know he's a prick, uh, he offers his service for 10 grand. Um, no one takes him seriously. So, uh, eventually, a New, like a a oceanographer uh, consultant uh, who's like an expert on sharks. He um, joins. His name is Matt Hooper, and he's played by Richard Dreyfuss. He arrives on the island, examines uh, the young girl from the beginning of the movie's body, determines there's no way it was a boat attack. This was a shark, boat attack, boat accident. This was a shark attack. There's no doubt about it. And he also notices that this is a rather large shark. It's an unusually large shark. Um, Around the same time, a local fisherman catches a shark. It's a tiger shark. A little bit of trivia there. The mayor proclaims the beach is safe. Um, while this is happening, uh, Alex Kintner's, uh, what was his name? Uh, Kintner's mother, who was in mourning because the boy's dead, comes up to Brody, slaps him in the face, basically blames him for, um, you know, for not shutting down the beaches, for, for his, for her son being dead. Um, and he obviously takes this quite hard. The mayor is saying, you know, it's not your fault. And the mayor's kind of right. It's the mayor's fault, but, but sure. Um, so anyway, after a while, um, uh, What's his name? Hooper. Hooper comes to to Brody's house, and they talk. They you know they get a little bit drunk, and they talk, and blah 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 blah. And eventually, uh, Hooper decide Hooper persuades Brody to go find that shark before it gets thrown back in the ocean or, or butchered or whatever, uh, to cut open its stomach and examine the insides of what's in the stomach, because he explains that uh, tiger sharks have really slow digestive systems, so whatever it ate in the last couple of days um, will, will be in there. Um, in fact, Hooper had kind of wanted to do that. Earlier that day when the when the shark was captured, but the mayor rightly, I think, um, says, no, like, I'm not going to let you cut open this shark's belly and have this like half digested dead boy fall out in front of everybody, including his mother. It's like the one time in the movie I, I agree um, with the mayor. But nevertheless, later on that evening, they decided to do it. Hooper cuts open the shark. They find uh, license plates. They find fish. They find all this disgusting shit, but they don't find the dead body of the boy, leading Hooper and Brody to conclude that the tiger shark was not the shark that attacked the two young people earlier. Uh, so, after finding, having this discovery, Hooper and Brody uh, go out on the water. They find a half-sunken um, vessel while searching the night water, f- like in Hooper's boat. So, underwater, Hooper jumps down with scuba gear, and he um, he f- he finds like this pretty large great white shark's tooth, um, you know, uh, lodged in the boat's hull. But after the partially, um, decomposed corpse of the fisherman who owned the boat appears and has worms in his eyes and is scary as shit, he drops the, uh, the tooth, which is his only evidence that he, the, the tiger shark was not, um, the, the, the guilty shark that has killed all these people. Um, so, Anyway, the the mayor is like dismissing Brody and Hooper. He's saying that it's definitely the tiger shark. It's not a grey white shark. You're being, you know, you're being uh, panic inducing. You're not, you're not thinking rationally, and refuses to co- close the beaches. Um, he allows some, you know, extended safety precautions, and though there's police on boats, there's helicopters, there's all this kind of stuff, which, you know, actually is not a bad idea. Like that's probably not a, you know. Not an unrealistic thing to to allow happen when there are sharks at the beach. Um, but nonetheless, yeah, the the, the mayor lets the Fourth of July parade and um, events go ahead. The beach is full, but no one really wants to get in the water. Um, people are still paranoid about the sharks. So the the mayor actually convinces one of his like councilmen to get in the water with his family. And once he does that, everybody else does that. Um, Hooper, I uh, know Hooper. Brody's kids want to go swimming. Uh, Brody and his wife managed to convince his kids to go into the pond, which is kind of like a sealed off estuary, uh, away from the beach. So they go in, they go in there. Um, eventually someone caught blows a whistle because they think they see a shark and they, they evacuate the water. People get trampled. People get really injured from it. It turns out just to be some kids wearing like a fake shark fin on their, um, on their head, which is obviously a pretty fucked up hoax that they do. Um, but they get a rifle pointed at them. So, you know, all's fair. Um, so no one you know it's the boy who cried wolf once that happens no one really takes the the shark thing seriously anymore even when someone starts screaming that there is a shark heading into the pond, um, and eventually that is confirmed when the shark attacks uh, a man on a on a little dinghy, and also uh, rams the, the the raft that Brody's children are on. Um, so yeah, so they basically the the gets killed, torn apart, um, and it causes his oldest uh, Brody's oldest son Michael to go into shock once he's dragged onto the beach. So the kids survive, but somebody died, and uh, Brody then at the hospital convinces. Uh, Vaughn, the mayor, who is now at this point guilt-ridden and realizes he's wrong, he convinces him to hire Quint. Um, So basically that happens. Quint, Brody, and Hooper set out on Quint's boat, which is called the Orca. And a little bit of trivia as well, the Orca is called the Orca because the Orca is the great white shark's only natural enemy in the ocean. I I, I like that. So Brody's laying down a chum line, Quint's waiting for an opportunity to hook the shark. Um, Without warning, and you've probably seen the scene, the shark appears and it's kind of the first time we really get to see the shark properly uh, it appears behind behind Brody um, so Quint estimates its length to be about 7.6 meters and weighing about three tons um, which is like massive you know that's where that famous line you know you're gonna need another boat comes in, Um, uh, Quint manages to harpoon it with a line attached to a flotation barrel, but the shark pulls the barrel underwater and disappears. So at night, um, Quint and Hooper are getting drunk, which is, you know, such a smart idea when you're on a tiny little vessel trying to capture the biggest shark you've seen in your life, but whatever. They're drunkenly exchanging stories uh, about their, like, each of them have different scars from being attacked by thrasher sharks and all this other stuff. And um, Quint reveals that he was actually, uh, he survived the attack of the USS Indianapolis, Now, if you're not aware of what what that is, um, the USS Indianapolis was a warship during World War II that was torpedoed, I think, by the Japanese um, and, you know, sank. All these men died on the boat. The ones who survived, who went into the ocean, um, you know, they were eaten by, they were eaten by packs of frenzied uh, sharks, essentially. It's a pretty horrific story and we're going to cover it one day. Um, but if you don't want to wait until then to find out more information about it, go check out the last podcast on the left. They did an episode earlier this year about the USS Indianapolis and, um, it's sinking and the, <laughs> the horror story basically that that was. So go and check that out or wait for me to do an episode of that. It'll probably be in a year or two though. Um, but anyway, Quint was part of that attack and he survived it. Um, after they've had their little drunken powwow, um, the shark unexpectedly returns and rams the boat's hull, which disables the the power and the motor. So working through the night, the men uh, try to repair the, Repair the engine, but it's still billowing white smoke. Um, in the morning, Brody attempts to call the Coast Guard, but Quint, who was now a fucking asshole, he smashes the radio, which makes it impossible for the men to call for assistance. So at this point, um, Quint is pretty clearly becoming an analogue for um, you know Captain Ahab from Moby Dick. They're obsessed. The great white shark is essentially Quint's white whale. He's obsessed with catching it. He's not going to let anyone else get in his way. So that's that's strike number three or something for, for Quint. Um, number one was. Uh, uh, you know scratching the his nails on the whiteboard and number 2 was getting drunk while you know supposed to be captaining a ship number 3 is just being a prick and breaking the radio but spoiler alert he does get something coming to him pretty soon um so you know Brody's really pissed off that this has happened there's a long chase Quint manages to harpoon the shark again with another barrel so the line's tied to him, um, and they try to tie it to the to the cleats of the boat, but the shark is so powerful that it's actually dragging the boat backwards, swamping the uh, engine and flooding it and turning the smoke from white to black. So uh, Quint's trying to sever the line to prevent the uh, boat from being pulled underwater, um, all the while keeping the barrels attached to the shark. So Quint heads towards the shore to draw the shark into shallow waters, but he uh, manages to damage the engine and it fails. So they're basically stranded in the water. The orca is now slowly sinking and the trio attempts uh, a much riskier approach. So Hooper is wanting to do things uh, a bit more modern modern and uh, high-tech than Quint for the whole time. So he basically has a a spear gun, I think, and he loads it with with poison, essentially. He's going to stab the shark with and he gets himself into a steel shark cage that gets lowered in the water. Um, he basically... It's strychnine is the, is the poison he wants to... Uh, Kill the shark with strychnine in a hypodermic spear. Um, Pretty much immediately, the shark rams the cage, instantly damaging it and causing Hooper to drop the spear, um, which is sunk and lost. Um, The shark smashes the cage. He thrashes in it. Um, There is blood. Uh, We can't tell what's happening. We think Hooper has died. Um... Don't worry, he doesn't. Hooper manages to escape to the seabed. Um, The shark breaks free of the cage and leaps up into the boat. When that happens, it causes the boat to tip upwards and Quince slowly slides into the shark's mouth where he's uh, basically bitten in half and, and he dies. Um, he gets devoured, uh, which is, uh, I re- that's the one part of the movie I remember from watching as a kid was how fucking terrifying it was to actually see that. Um, but yeah, Quinn, Quinn gets what he <laughs> kind of deserved from being such a prick. Um, but it is hard to watch anyway. So now the boat is well and truly sinking. He goes into the, um, I don't know what you call it, the cabin of the boat and the shark is following in. The shark is destroying the ship uh Brody's kind of doing like a last standoff as far as he knows Hooper is dead Quinn's dead I didn't mention this but Hooper uh, sorry Brody is terrified of the ocean and the water he doesn't go on boats so this is kind of like his last stand he grabs his rifle he grabs um one of the uh, oxygen tanks that Hooper brought on board so he go scuba diving and he manages to shove it into the shark's mouth before it um, you know, swimmers away. He climbs onto the, uh, crow's nest and the ship is nearly sunk. He's virtually horizontal with the water lying on the thing with a rifle. And, uh, he manages to shoot the tank with Quinn's rifle, which explodes, which results in the, in the shark um, being killed, uh, unequivocally killed by the way. It's absolutely dead. Um, Right after this, he's celebrating. He's got bits of meat flying everywhere. Hooper resurfaces, and they meet, and they have a little cuddle, and then they uh, they swim back to shore, um, clinging to the remaining barrels, and that's the end of the movie. So um, the yeah, that's that's basically the story now. Looking back in a modern lens, it, it's kind of... It's a little bit of a predictable story, but given that this was 1975, that this was written and produced, uh, this was kind of a groundbreaking story for that time. And it and it does hold up quite well, actually, like re-watching it. The, the tension is incredible. Um, so one thing I want to talk about was the, the troubled development process or production process that this movie had. So... Um, One of the major things that kept going wrong was the shark puppet was constantly malfunctioning and getting damaged. It was causing the production to run over budget. It was causing uh, the production to run uh, way behind schedule. So um, basically, uh, the director, Steven Spielberg, had this idea to use the shark puppet very minimally until like the end of the movie it, it would be more effective to only allude to it and i think this is like a uh tactic that most horror horror movie directors take nowadays which is that we don't want to see the monster the monster is scarier when we can't see it when we invent it in our brain and when we see it at the end it's almost always like a, a little bit of a letdown this isn't the case actually i think the um People make fun of the of the Jaws puppet, I think, a lot. But the animatronic Jaws, um, named Bruce, by the way, uh, is actually really frightening. And when you see it, it's mixed in with footage of actual sharks, uh, actual great white sharks. It's quite convincing. It's quite scary when you, when you see it for the first time. When there's prolonged shots where it's like out of the water and lying on the boat, then it starts to look a bit silly. You can tell that it's like an animatronic jaw and whatever. But there are moments where it just swims past where it looks like a real shark. It's actually quite... <clears throat> so yeah, like I said at the beginning, the uh, the movie was based off a book called Jaws, which was written the year before in 1974. Um, now, when they came to do the film adaptation, Spielberg um, said that he he wanted to stay with the novel's basic plot, but he dis he benched a bunch of like Benchley's um subplots so there was like a subplot in there where um uh Hooper and and Brody's wife had an affair which kind of really does and he said this it kind of undermines the camaraderie of the two men on the boat later on which I agree with I think that's just totally out of place and it would have been really weird to see um he basically said that he wanted uh, his favorite part of the book was the shark hunt which is the last 120 pages and he told the the Play the uh, the producer when he accepted the job. He wants to do the picture if he can change the first two acts and uh, base the first two acts on original screenplay material, uh, but be very true to the book in the last third. So when the producers purchase the right. To the novel they promised Peter Benchley that he could write the first draft of the screenplay um and he basically did that the intent was to make sure a script could be done despite an impending threat from the writers guild um so and Benchley was not unionized so uh he, he wrote three drafts of the script um before it was turned over to other writers Benchley later said that um you know he, he uh He's, he's written books, but it's the best he can do. He's not um, a screenwriter. And what did he say? He's got a quote here. The storyline and the ocean stuff, basically the mechanics, that's what he com- committed. Um, he said that he didn't know how to put the character texture into a screenplay, which is, a, you know, really interesting. One of the changes was, yes, to remove the novel's adulterous affair between Ellen Brody and Matt Hooper. Um, and that was at the suggestion of, Spiel- of Spielberg. He said that it would compromise the camaraderie of the men on the Orca, which, yeah, absolutely. And I, don't, I can't see how that movie would end with the two of them getting along but uh nevertheless that didn't happen anyway um so let's talk casting um, oh, actually, so Benchley had written Jaws after reading about sport fisherman Frank Mundus's capture of enormous shark in 1964. Um, Quint was loosely based on Mundus, who's the fisherman, um, whose book, Sporting for Sharks, uh, he read for research. Um, they came up with the backstory of Quint as a survivor of the World War II USS Indianapolis, Indianapolis disaster, so that's not part of the book. Um, and the question of who deserves the most credit for writing Quint's monologue about the Indianapolis has caused substantial controversy um Spielberg described it as a collaboration between Sackler Miles, and Robert Shaw who was also a playwright interesting what did he write let's have a little looky-loo um oh he he did productions of Macbeth Henry VIII blah 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 I don't it doesn't really matter (laughs) um Gottlieb who was one of the producers gives primary credit to Shaw downplaying Milas's contribution which is a very producery thing to do it's it's a better story for the for the actor to have come up with a monologue rather than a writer but who, who knows um so anyway, uh, there was a request from Zanuck and Brown, who were the producers, that Spielberg was to cast well-known actors. Um, and and Spielberg, you know, he complied with that, but he said that he didn't want to hire any big stars. He said that um, by keeping these actors to somewhat anonymous performers, it would help the audience believe that this was actually happening to real people in the real world. And he said that stars bring a lot of memories with them, and these memories can sometimes corrupt the story, which is a really smart thing the interestingly the first actors to be cast was uh was Lorraine uh, sorry Lorraine Gary to play the wife of Brody um and then also uh um oh and he he was also that's interesting um the director sorry Lorraine Gary was the wife of the then president of Universal Studios Sidney Scheinberg There you go. A little bit of nepotism for you. Murray Hamilton was the uh, mayor as well. He was one of the first people to be cast. Like I said earlier, the stunt woman turned actress, Susan Backelein was cast as Chrissy, the first victim as she knew how to swim and was willing to perform nude. Um, Many or most of the minor roles were played by residents of Martha's Vineyard, where the film was shot. Um, one example was Deputy Hendricks, played by future television producer Jeffrey Kramer. Lee Fiero plays Mrs. Kitner, uh, the mother of the shark's second victim, um, Alex. Um, the role of Brody, and this is interesting, was offered to Robert Duvall which would have been a really interesting performance. Uh, But Robert Duvall said he wasn't interested. He only wanted to play Quint. Um, Shelton Heston expressed a desire for the role, but Spielberg felt that Heston would bring a screen persona too Grand for the part of a police chief in a modest community. Roy Scheider, I don't know how to say his name, became interested in the project after overhearing Spielberg at a party talking with a screenwriter about having a shark jump onto a boat. Um, However, Spielberg was initially apprehensive about hiring him, fearing he would portray a tough guy similar to his role in The French Connection. Um, Yeah, so nine days, nine days before the starting of production, neither Quint or Hooper had been cast, which they're, quite significant roles. The role of Quint was originally offered to actors Lee Marvin and Sterling Hayden, both of whom passed. Zanuck and Brown had just finished working with Robert Shaw on The Sting and suggested him to Spielberg. Shaw was reluctant, this is great by the way, Shaw was reluctant to take on the role since he did not like the book, but decided to accept at the urging of both his wife, actress Mary Ur, and his secretary. Um... This is also interesting. Shaw based his performance on fellow cast member Craig Kinsbury, a local fisherman farmer and legendary eccentric uh, who was playing the fisherman Ben Gardner, who was the person who died and the, the body scared Hooper. Um, Spielberg, this is... Um, no, this sorry, I got mixed up. This is where what I find really funny. The role of Hooper, which was, in a, which was uh, Richard Dreyfuss, was initially uh, they wanted John Voight or Timothy Bottoms Jan Michael Vincent, Kevin Klein, Joel Grey, or Jeff Bridges. They were considered for the part. Spielberg's friend George Lucas suggested Richard Dreyfuss, who had just appeared in American Graffiti. Now, this is what I find funny. The actor... Dreyfus um, initially passed on the role, but he changed his decision after he attended a pre-release screening of The Apprenticeship of Duddy Kravitz, uh, which he had just completed. He saw his performance, was very disappointed in his performance, and feared that no one would ever hire him again once that movie was released. So he immediately called Spielberg and accepted the role um, in Jaws. Because the film uh because the film the director envisioned was so dissimilar to the book, uh, Spielberg asked Dreyfus not to read it. As a result of the casting, Hooper was rewritten uh, to suit the actor, um, as well as to be more representative uh, of Spielberg, who came uh, to view Dreyfus as his alter ego. So there's some interesting, interesting facts there. Now, another bit of trivia um, that I um, found out was from my partner, Actually, she mentioned that in Jaws, one of the beach scenes, there's a woman who's like a background extra. Now, A few years after filming Jaws, um, a dead body showed up. She was murdered by a serial killer. And, um, I I wish I had got more information on this, but you can look this story up as well. She was murdered by a serial killer and no one knew who she was. She was a Jane Doe until like decades later, someone was watching Jaws and had, you know, remembered the, uh, the, the, not the wanted posters, but basically the, have you seen this person poster, um, the missing persons poster for, for the woman, um, and he saw the movie, and he saw this woman, and he recognized her from the, uh, you know, have you seen this woman poster? And he re- and he put the, the dots together. The woman who was the extra in Jaws, um, actually was the, was the victim, and so they were able to identify this body later on, and uh, I believe that would have helped, uh, you know, crack the case on who who did it. So. Look, that's Jaws. Um, it was obviously a massive success, despite being such a rushed and annoying production to get to get going. It was obviously massively successful. It was kind of like a a proto blockbuster. It was really the first blockbuster in in the history of cinema. Um, it only opened in four hundred nine theaters uh, with a record seven million dollar weekend, which is huge. That's a uh, twenty one million dollars in the first ten days, uh, which recouped its production costs in ten days. So that's amazing. I think there's a bit here that tells you what it would be. Across all of its releases, Jaws has uh, grossed $476 million worldwide. Adjusted for inflation, it's earned almost $2 billion um, at 2011 prices and is the second most successful franchise film after Star Wars. Um, including its 2022 reissue, it has grossed $265.8 million in the United States and Canada, equivalent to $1.2 billion at 2020 prices Uh you know, with inflation. It's the highest, uh, sorry, it's the seventh highest grossing movie of all time adjusted for ticket inflation. In the UK, it's the seventh highest grossing film to be released since 1975. Um, And Jaws also has sold 13 million tickets in Brazil, the second highest attendance ever in the country behind Titanic, Um, which is interesting, you know, both nautical themed um, films. So yeah, Jaws is obviously like, an incredibly well-reviewed movie. Um, uh, at the time it was well-reviewed. R- Roger Ebert, um, who's very famous, gave it four four stars, calling it a sensationally effective action picture, a scary thriller that works all the better because it's populated with characters that have been developed into human beings. No, I, I would definitely agree with that. Um, you know, the movie did have some detractors. People saying it's not, um. Accurate to sharks. There's always that. That always happens when you do a movie about a man eater. And I'll talk about my feelings of that as well in a moment. Um, in terms of accolades, Jaws actually won three Oscars um, for film editing, for best original dramatic score for John Williams, obviously, and for best sound design. Um, it was also nominated for best picture, but it lost to one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Um, Spielberg greatly resented the fact he was not nominated for best director, um, which back then was a very rare occurrence. Now, more and more, you find best picture, uh, nominees and winners being nominated, uh, and not the director. But back then that was very, very rare. It would, it did only happened like five times in history before like 2000. I think I could be completely wrong there. So, um, Jaws spawned, uh, three sequels, um, to declining critical favor and commercial success. No, no one really cares about Jaws 2, 3 or 3D or whatever it is. Um, The combined domestic grosses amount to barely half of the original film's release. In October 1975, Spielberg declared to a film festival audience that making a sequel to anything is just a cheap, carny trick. Nonetheless, he did consider taking on the first sequel when its original director, John D. Hancock, was fired a few days into the shoot. Ultimately, his obligations to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, which also starred Richard Dreyfuss, made it impossible. Jaws 2 was released in 1978 and was eventually directed by uh, Jeannotte Schwa, with Scheider, Gary Hamilton and Jeffrey Kramer reprising their roles. It is generally regarded as the best of the sequels. Jaws 3D was released in 1983, does not feature any of the original actors, although it was directed by Joe Alves, who who had served as art director and production designer respectively on the first two films. It starred Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. and was released uh, to heavily negative reviews because it was in a 3D format. Remember, this is 1983. It wasn't great back then. The effects did not transfer to television or home video where it was renamed Jaws 3. Jaws the Revenge from 1987 was directed by Joseph Sargent and featured the return of Lorraine Gary as Ellen Brody. Co-starred Michael Caine, and it was considered the worst movie, one of the worst movies ever made. While all three sequels made a profit at the box office, uh, Jaws 2 and Jaws 3D were among the 20 highest-grossing films in their respective years, critics and audiences alike were largely dissatisfied with the films. So it's like the um it's like the hangover effect, right? Just stick to one. If you just had the one hangover movie, it would be considered a classic. Um I mean, Jaws is, I guess, the exception to that rule because Jaws is a classic and it is probably one of the top 20 films ever made. It, was, it obviously is probably one of the top 10 most important films ever made, being, you know, the first proto-blockbuster film followed closely by Star Wars, uh, which was a few years later, I think 1979, I think, um, the first Star Wars movie. So, you know, both really, really important films. So my thoughts on Jaws. Like I said at the outset, hugely entertaining film. I think the performances are great. I think the, the script is fantastic. The, the cinematography for 1975, it does hold up. I wasn't sitting there thinking like, oh God, like this looks terrible. It sounds awful. The score is incredible, which is not a secret to anyone It's, it's John Williams. Um, so let, let's talk about the, uh, the um, accuracy to real life. So we talked about this with, with The Grey. Um, do wolves, this was the question I asked myself back then, do wolves actually make a habit of um, hunting? human beings and killing them for sport like that. Yes and no. It has happened but generally speaking no they won't they won't attack like that. The same thing sort of goes with jaws. Uh, it is kind of unheard of for a shark to be a serial killer, to be purposefully hunting humans. Most shark attacks are accidents. That's why, you know, most shark attack victims only get a bite or they lose a leg or they get a bite on the, on the rib or something like that. Um, but once the shark bites them and figures, oh, it's not a seal. It's just a fucking dude. Um, they, they move on. We're not that interesting for them. Um, of course there have been cases where people have been devoured by sharks, like in the USS Indianapolis, but these are sort of marginal cases. I think in general, a serial killer shark that is going out of its way to you know, destroy a boat, climb up on the boat and attack people, um, at the risk of its own well-being, that is unheard of. However, the accuracy in a lot of the biology, and it's, it's quite impressive actually, the way that, um, Hooper talks about these sharks. I'll give you an example is, um, at one point they talk about a shark uh, attacking someone in a river and they mention, um, but they don't even go in to mention like, oh, bull sharks, they can go in the water, they can breathe fresh water. Like that's the thing that we would get in a film today where films can't ever just be, they can't ever just say something, they have to explain it to you. You can't just like go away with them like, oh, I wonder what that meant and Google it and find out. They always have to, you know, serve it to you on a platter. With this movie, like with the scientific knowledge, they drop facts but they don't make it to... Um, nerdy about it. They're not making a big show and dance about it, which, which I really appreciate. So, um, yeah, in terms of accuracy, I think that apart from the fact that it's a bigger shark than I think was ever recorded, but not by much, um, and, if, and apart from the fact that the, <laughs> the shark jumps on the boat, which, by the way, mako sharks do jump on boats, but it's not on purpose. They breach the water, they jump out. So, same with thresher sharks, and they have landed on boats, killing people. In fact, I think a mako shark jumped out of a, out of the ocean onto a boat within the last five to ten years and actually killed a woman by landing on her. But great white sharks don't breach like that um, to, to land on boats. I don't think that's ever happened. So that's not right. However, everything else about the, 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 the sharks in this movie, I would say is very close to being accurate. So I'm actually going to give this like a four out of five for accuracy in terms of the, uh, the film itself. Like I, I think I'd be a bit of a hack to say it's anything but a five out of five. Um, I don't remember what, (laughs) I don't remember what scoring, um, criteria we had for the first episode. If it was like tiger faces or paws or whatever it was, let's just go with like, footprints paw paw prints jaws is a five out of five footprints there's no debating that it's absolutely one of the greatest films of all time it's probably hands down the best man in movie we're ever going to watch but we will we'll we'll see we're gonna listen to, uh, we're gonna watch a few more in the coming weeks, so we'll, we'll see how we go. So that is gonna be the of my discussion of of Jaws, which I rambled on for about half an hour there. We do have time for a very quick scratch of the day, and we're gonna do it live. So I've got up, I'm just googling animal attacks. Let's see what comes up. Okay, three choices. All about dogs. <laughs> police kill two dogs after U.S. Amazon driver dies in apparent police uh, animal attack. That's the first title. The second one is Sheriff. Autopsy will determine if dogs killed Amazon driver. It's the same story. Okay, it's the same story for all three. Let's just click the first one. This is from The Guardian. Okay, so this is, like I said, The Guardian. This is written by... Uh, Uram Salam from Missouri. Uh, this was published 12 hours ago. Okay, the title is Police kill two dogs after US Amazon driver dies in apparent animal attack. The subtitle is, Man's Body Found on Lawn of Home in Excelsior Springs in Missouri, where police later shot English Mastiff and German Shepherd. Here's the story. Two dogs were fatally shot by police after an Amazon driver was found dead near them on Monday night with what appears to be wounds from an animal attack. Police in Excelsior Springs, Missouri, said they found a man's body on the front lawn of a home about 7pm after neighbours reported a van had been parked there for many hours. Investigators discovered that the dead man was an Amazon delivery driver. Police also said an English Mastiff and German Shepherd were on the scene behaving aggressively before retreating into the house at one point. The owners were not there, and the local sheriff, Scott Childers, said deputies shot and killed both dogs. Authorities have so far stopped short of confirming that the slain dogs killed the Amazon delivery driver, but the sheriff said the man's wounds were consistent with having been mauled by an animal. Officials have not publicly released the man's name. Amazon released a statement expressing sorrow over the driver's death. We're deeply saddened by tonight's tragic incident involving a member of our Amazon family and will be providing support to the team and the driver's loved ones, the statement said according to NBC News. We are assisting law enforcement with their investigation. This is the second time a package carrier has been killed since August with five dogs attacking and killing a postal worker in Florida after her vehicle broke down. That postal worker, Pamela Jane Rock, was 61 years old, NBC News reported. Dog attacks against package carriers are common in the U.S. According to the U.S. Postal Service, in 2021 alone, more than 5,400 oh wow, 5, postal employees were attacked by dogs across the United States. Excelsior Springs is a community of about 10,000 people, about 25 miles northeast of Kansas City. There you go. Very sad. Um, that 5,400 people being attacked by dogs in a year, that's that's wild. That that number actually very much surprises me. All right, I'm going to look for one more uh, story. Let's have a look here. This is interesting. This is from Mint. Mumbai, a toddler attacked and killed in another leopard attack at Erie Colony. Okay, let's have a look at this. I... Uh, It's hard to tell. I think this is another Indian publication, so bear with me if there are tricky pronunciations. In a gruesome incident, a one and a half year old girl lost... Oh, I should have said, I'm sorry, I usually do this. uh, I'm going to give you a little uh, content warning. This involves the death of a child, which I've just learned. So uh, feel free to skip to the end or leave now uh, if you don't want to hear about that. Okay. In a gruesome incident, a one and a half-year-old girl lost her life when a leopard attacked her in a forested area of Airy Colony in the western suburb of Ghoragan, Mumbai, on Monday. Notably, another child was injured in a similar attack in uh, Narav- Naravati this year. According to the police, the incident took place in the early hours in Unit Number Fifteen of Airy. The girl, the girl child, was on her way to visit the temple with her mother. Suddenly, a leopard attacked the toddler and injured her. The injured girl was immediately taken to a nearby hospital, but she was declared dead by doctors. On the basis of primary information, we have registered an accidental death report in the case. Further investigation is underway, said doctors. After the accident, an official informed uh, that the Forest Department had begun working on an action plan to stop the human-animal conflict in the area, reported PTI. To formulate the action plan, the, finest, the, for- sorry, the Forest Department has also called a team from the rescue. Organization for Wildlife and Welfare uh, for assistance. It is worth noting this is the second such incident of a leopard attack in Erie in October. A four-year-old boy was killed in a similar attack in Erie lying next to Sanjay Gandhi National Park in the beginning of October. Over 10 people lost their lives in leopard attacks last year. To prepare for such actions in the future, authorities have deployed a wildlife ambulance, wildlife distress response teams from the Mumbai Forest Department and volunteers in the area. During the whole week, rescuers and leopard experts, wildlife animal experts and senior officials from forest departments are deployed at Erie around the clock. In a bid to identify the cat and track its movements, the department has also installed camera traps that will begin patrolling at night. Erie is the Mumbai suburb, which is located near Sanjay Gandhi National Park. Due to its large forest cover, the region is known as the Green Lung of Mumbai. However, its residents are constantly living in fear that wild animal attacks are going to occur, as the cases of leopard attacks in Erie are increasing day by day. And that's obviously a very sad... Uh, way to end our episode but that is where we're going to end it thank you for joining me for another episode of Man Eaters and another episode of uh, Man Eater Movies I do enjoy watching movies and talking about them so let me know what you think uh, and let me know if you watch yours and you agree with my thinking maybe you think it's not an overrated film I don't know but thank you for that I want to give a shout out to my patrons on Patreon Uh, we're having a great time over there I recorded a live feed not a live feed a video yesterday um, of me completing a tier list a Man Eaters tier list which you can also do so uh, yeah jump on the Patreon, support us there. I really appreciate it. Um, it's it's a great way to, to support the show, to support me, to show you care. Five bucks a month. And actually, if you're in America, it's like five bucks Australian a month. So for you, it's probably like $2.50. So two bucks, 50. You can do that once a month. You get access to great perks. Uh, and if you donate more than that, you get a shout out on a potty. Also feel free to send me emails or uh, messages on social media, requesting different stories that I do, uh, different Killer Cryptids different many into movies you want me to review anything like that I love to hear from you it's uh it's been a thrill uh getting to grow our little Manita Eater family over the last year um speaking of uh, we have I think I mentioned this last episode we uh we hit a year basically we've been doing this for a year which is fantastic my birthday is this weekend so by the time you're listening to this I might have gotten another year older so we're we're moving onwards and upwards i've just dropped a little thing on my desk oh well <coughs> That's going to do it. Thank you so much. As always, all of our social media links and email is in the description. If you want to follow us, do that. You can follow me on Instagram at jimothychaps. Do all the bullshit. It's great. It really helps us out. Have a fantastic day. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll see you next time. And as always, be careful out there because as we know, it's a jungle out there.